This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages William McRae presented answering the question, Who is God? at Moody Keswick Bible Conference, 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Now, here is William McRae on Today in the Word Radio. Last week, I had a great privilege... It was the uh, privilege of conducting a memorial service for one of God's very choice servants in our part of Canada. And for over 40 years, that man had served God as a pastor in a church, as one of the professors in our Bible college, as the uh, director of the Fairhaven's conference grounds. Uh, He had been just a, a leader in our community. And after uh, an 18-month battle with cancer, uh, he died. And it was my privilege to have part in leading the memorial service. And as I reflected upon the life of my friend and the years of his continuance in ministry, I was impressed with, with the fact that he had not only begun well, and, and, and run well, but he ended well. You know, we don't see a lot of that today. Many people begin the Christian race well. Fewer run it well. But fewer still finish it well. And one always senses a great privilege when you come across a life that has finished well for God. My question this morning is, what are the ingredients that are absolutely essential if you're going to finish the race well? What's it take to not only begin it well and run it well, but to have run it well and to have finished the course, standing tall and strong, having run the race right to the end and having run it well. What's that take? 
What are some of the ingredients that are essential? Well, this morning we're going to look at an Old Testament prophet who I think did that. He ran the race well, he began it well, and he finished it well. And he did it in the midst of some adverse circumstances when, uh, from the perspective of many of us in our society today, we would be inclined to think of him as much of a failure and uh, not particularly successful in the ministry. The reason why he qualifies as a successful prophet was because he finished the race well. Now, how do you explain that? How do you account for it? Well, it seems to me it is essentially explained by going back to the very first experience of his life. And in that experience, he developed some senses. And he lived his life by those five senses. And that's why he ended his life running strong. The prophet is Isaiah. And the uh, chapter that we look at is chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, at uh, the beginning of Isaiah's life when uh, he had an experience uh, during which time he cultivated uh, five senses that really prevailed in the years that were ahead in his life. Isaiah chapter 6. And in the very first phrase, we're introduced to the circumstances that trigger the events of this chapter. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 begins with these words, In the year King Uzziah died. Now King Uzziah was... Uh, was one of the kings of Israel who, in spite of the shame of the last few years of his life, had been one of the great kings of Israel. Isaiah, a young man, in this time of national grief and in this time of personal grief, goes to the temple, presumably in order to gain consolation in this time of grief. And he gained a whole lot more than that we're going to discover some things that happened to Isaiah in that temple that shaped the rest of his life. First of all, I want you to get a feeling of, uh, of the sense that he had for the sovereignty of God. And you get that in what he saw in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. What did Isaiah see? Well, he saw in the throne room of heaven a throne, and that throne was occupied. Now, you need to get it in contrast with what's happening in his land. The throne in Jerusalem is empty, he looks up into heaven, sees the throne room of heaven, and there he sees the throne in heaven is occupied. Uzziah has died, but the Lord is alive. A king in Israel has passed from the scene. The king in heaven is on the throne. And Isaiah begins his experience with what, what we began our week yesterday. He began his experience by, uh, by being overwhelmed by the sovereignty of God. 
What do you do when the roof falls in? What do you do when the bottom falls out? What do you do when a King Uzziah dies? What you need to do is to do what Isaiah did. Take a peek into heaven and to look into the throne room and to see that the Lord is on the throne. And that tells the story of Isaiah's life. If you were with us yesterday morning, you will know that I gave you just two verses of many, many verses that could be drawn from this marvelous prophecy that focus upon the godhood of God, the kingship of God, the sovereignty of God. And one of the things you get, ladies and gentlemen, and as you read through the book of Isaiah, is that here is a king who has a great, here is a prophet who has a great sense of the sovereignty of God. And I submit to you that in an age when uh, there's a lot of reason for discouragement, and in uh, a ministry when there are tremendous oppositions and hostilities, that the thing that keeps men and women going is a sense of the sovereignty of God. In an age when the family is under tremendous duress, in an age when there are all kinds of pressures that discourage parents and frighten parents and bring tensions into marriages, in that kind of an age, the thing that keeps marriages going and that keeps families together and that keeps parents sane is a sense of the sovereignty of God. And that's how Isaiah began his ministry. His world fell apart in despair and hopelessness, wondering what the future holds. He slips into the temple and God opens up the courtroom, gives him a little glimpse in the throne room of heaven, and he's reminded of the fact God is alive. The throne in heaven is occupied. The sovereign Lord of the universe is on his throne and he's ruling and he's reigning. That's the kind of thing that gives men and women stickability, perseverance, that keeps us going so that we finish the race well. He had, number one, a great sense of the sovereignty of God. And it affected the entire rest of his life. Secondly... He had a great sense of the holiness of God. And that's evident from what he heard. Notice in verses 2 and 3. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And from that moment on, ladies and gentlemen, Isaiah's life is marked by a sense of the holiness of God. 
This is the attribute that we want to study together this morning in our study of the the nature of God. Yesterday, we began by saying, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And then I asked you the question, what comes into your mind first when you think about God? My recommendation was that what ought to come into our mind first when we think about God is the most elementary, the most basic thing that there is about God. And it's that he's God. While it's the most elementary and the most basic, it is the most profound thing. He's God. It is the most overlooked thing. He's God. The first thing that ought to come into our mind when we think about God is that he's God, that he is the sovereign Lord ruler in this universe. Now, I'm going to be careful about how far I carry this, but I think this morning I'm safe. The second thing that ought to come into your mind when you think about God is what we want to study together this morning. And that is that this God who is God is a God who is holy. Now, I I have no further wisdom as to what the third thing and the fourth thing ought to be, but I am rather convinced that the first thing ought to be that he's God, and the second thing ought to be that he's a holy God. Now, let me see if I can prove that to you and, and give you a little support for it and a little evidence of it. For example, did you know that holiness is attributed to God more than any other characteristic in the Bible. He's described as holy more than he's described as loving. Holiness is more a characteristic of God attributed to him than grace or than mercy or than loving kindness or omnipotence or omniscience or omnipresence or any of the other great attributes of God. He is described as holy more than any other characteristic. That should be perhaps reason enough for us to think of him as a holy God when we first think of him. But I've got another reason that I think is more significant than that. Some people, when they talk about the holiness of God, talk about it as the attribute of the attributes. Now, that's that's an interesting way of putting it. Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, describes it as the uh, supreme and central perfection of God. That's, That's putting it in a pretty powerful place. That it is the supreme and the central perfection of God. Why would one dare to do that with the holiness of God? Well, it's because, as someone else has said, and listen to it carefully, holiness is the transcendent attribute of God. Now, do you know what that means? What it means is that the holiness of God is the attribute that transcends all of the other attributes of God. And it is the only one of its kind. 
This is what it means. It means that God's love is a holy love. It means that God's power is a holy power. It means that God's mercy is a holy mercy. There's a sense in which then the holiness of God sheds its shadow over all of the other attributes of God. Every other attribute of God is a reflection of the holiness of God. That's why I think it's safe for us to say that when we're starting to prioritize things, what we really ought to do is put holiness above all of the other attributes and characteristics of God because it sheds its luster upon all of them. It influences all of the other. All of the others reflect the holiness of God. Now, if that's true, then my thesis for you this morning is this, that when you and I think of God, the very first thing that we need to think of is that he's God. He's not a puppet. He's not just a big man. He's not my big brother. He's not just better than us. He's God. And he's a God who is a holy God. I think that needs to be right at the very top of our list. Now, what do we mean when we say that God is holy? What exactly is meant by that? Well, the holiness of God, the psalmist calls it the beauty of God. The the holiness of God is his beauty. The holiness of God exists on two different levels. First of all, when we speak of God as being holy, we speak of him as being separated from us. You remember that was the meaning of the word Holy, the root word for holy in both the Old and the New Testament. That meant to cut or to set up, to separate in the Old Testament and the New Testament to set apart. And when we talk about the holiness of God, what we are simply meaning is that he's, he's apart from us. He's separate from us. He's, uh, he's above and beyond us. It speaks of his majestic holiness. And that, I think, is the primary thought of the holiness of God. You see, and all that does is simply reinforce what we were saying yesterday. God is not one of us, friends. God is apart from us. He's separate from us. God is not a man. God is God. And there's a majestic holiness about him that puts him apart from us, above us, beyond us, separate from us. That's his majestic holiness, and that is the primary emphasis of the holiness of God in the Bible. That that majestic holiness has a derivative. It uh, It has an implication, and the implication is what we call his ethical holiness. He is ethically holy. He is morally holy. And that simply emphasizes the fact that, uh, that he's apart from sin. He is separate from sin. He is never tempted by sin. There is never anything that God does that has a tinge of sin to it. He is absolutely pure. That is the ethical holiness of God. Now, it's important for me to understand that that's what the Bible means when it talks about the holiness of God. 
It means that he's, he's apart from, he's other than, he's separate from us. It speaks of his majestic holiness. He's, he's God. He's different than we are. And in his godliness, he is apart from sin. He is pure. He is absolutely, totally, without qualification, absolutely pure and holy. That's the holiness of God. Now, when Isaiah comes into the temple, he hears the chariot, the seraphim, as they're, as they're flying around, and they're saying to one another, holy, holy, holy. It is the only attribute of God that is trebled in the Bible. That happens in Isaiah 6. It happens over in the book of Revelation as well. And on two occasions, holiness is attributed to him in this threefold fashion. Holy, holy, holy. Now, why do you think it's given to us in its threefold way? Well, duplication or repetition in the Bible is always a technique for emphasis. Samuel, Samuel. Why twice? Saul, Saul. Why twice? Verily, verily. Why twice? Well, that's a biblical technique for emphasis. Um, When you want to emphasize something in written form... There are different ways of doing it. Sometimes uh, we'll put it in italics. Uh, Sometimes we'll underline it. When you uh, don't use those techniques, in the days of the Old Testament, the emphasis was by that repetition at the beginning. And those repeated phrases are a way of saying, um, this is important, stop, listen, hold it, I've got something very important to say, hear it. Isn't it interesting? That the holiness of God is trebled. Holy, holy, holy. And I'm inclined to think that that is a biblical way of underscoring it, of putting it in italics, of uh, covering it with a yellow highlighter, of saying to us, this is very important. This is a very high priority. I want you to understand that this is a very, very important feature. It is the holiness of God. Now, I know what many of you are thinking, because you've thought all your life. This is an allusion to the Trinity. Holy, the Father. Holy, the Son. Holy, the Spirit. I think you're right. And I'm going to pick that up this evening, and I'm going to use it when we talk about holiness in our Christian living. I think that there is perhaps an illusion. I think there is perhaps a reference to that. But more directly, it seems to me that more directly, it is a reference to the prioritizing. It is a reference to the emphasis, to the important feature that the holiness of God is something that is, is a high priority. And I have a great sense in our evangelical churches today, that we've lost a sense of the holiness of God. You say, Bill, what would, what would ever make you come to that conclusion? Well, it's because, you see, when men and women have a sense of the holiness of God, there are always some effects in our lives. One of the finest books on the holiness of God is in our bookstore, and I hope that you will get it if you do not have it. It's by R.C. Sproul, and it's called The Holiness of God. It's an excellent book. 
And in that book, he tells the story of some research that was done by a person by the name of Rudolf Otto, just in the beginning of this 20th century. And he did some research around the world to see how people responded to, um, to persons or to entities, to gods, that they considered to be holy. How people responded in their, in their response to holiness, holy people, holy things. He discovered some very interesting things. He discovered that universally, whether it was Christians, whether it was pagans in the far-off world, worlds, that universally the overwhelming sensation that people have when they come in touch with a holy God is a sense of creatureliness. I'm only a person. I'm only a man. You see, that's so important for us to understand in the light of what we have been saying is the holiness of God. The primary emphasis on the holiness of God is his other than us. He's apart from us. He's above and beyond us. He's God. We're men. And one of the evidences in the life of a man or woman that he or she has a sense of the holiness of God is that they have a great sense that they're simply a creature. One of the evidences in a church that in that congregation there is a great sense of the holiness of God is that in that congregation there's a great sense that we're just people, we're just men. Now, frankly, friends, I don't see that awareness often in our evangelical churches and oftentimes in our Christian lives. We have bought in to the thesis of humanism and what we have done far too often, it seems to me, in our lives is we have deified ourselves. We have deified mankind so that it's my life, so that it's my rights. And what we are constantly doing is playing games that involve building up and exalting and promoting self. One of the evidences in the lives of people who have a great sense of the holiness of God is that they have an overwhelming sense that they're simply a creature. They're just men and women. Every breath that we breathe comes to us from God. Our life is entirely under his ownership. We are simply, merely creatures. We are only men. Because of this, the lack of that awareness, I'm, I, I, I have a fear that we do not have in our evangelical circles today, a great sense of the holiness of God. When that prevails, creatureliness prevails. Rudolf Otto discovered something else in his work on how people respond to holiness. Another thing that he discovered, whether it was Christians with their holy God or whether it was pagans with their holy gods, the way people responded to, to that holy person was with ambivalence. It was with a conflicting kind of emotion. 
And he, he, he seems to me he paints it so perfectly where he says, on the one hand, there's a, uh, there's a tendency or an inclination to be drawn to him. He's different than us. He's apart from us. He's above and he's beyond us. And there's a tendency to be drawn to him where, where we want to know him and we want to see him and we want to be with him and we want to relate to him. And yet at exactly the same time, there's a tendency to step back from him. Who am I to be near him? What right do I have to be close to him? It's that kind of, it's that kind of tension. Is that not precisely what the Bible describes as the fear of God. The fear of God has that tension to it. The fear of God has that emotion of drawing us to him, drawing us to him in awe and wonder and worship. You see, a congregation or an individual that has a great sense of the holiness of God will be a congregation or an individual that wants to be drawn to him, that delights in times of worship, that, um, that just is exhilarated by moments and, 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 and times when they reflect upon him and sing hymns and choruses to him and they speak to him. It's, it's what we call worship. It's being drawn to him to stand before him as a creature and just to worship him. I visit lots of churches. I'm in a different church every weekend and sometimes in some weekends two or three different churches. And one of the things that I've discovered is that there is a wide, wide difference in the quality of worship that exists in our evangelical churches. One of my observations is this, is that churches that have a quality of worship, an awe before God, a delight to just spend time before him and to worship him, those kinds of congregations and those kinds of people have a sense of the holiness of God. They are drawn to him. They want to stand before him. They stand with mouths closed, with hearts that are open. They stand in awe and worship of him. While at the same time, and that's the tension of the fear of God, there's a backing away from him. There's a, there's a sense of almost being repulsed by him. He's, he's holy. And... Who am I to be close to him, to approach him, and to have access to him, and to stand before him with all of the blurs and all of the blahs and all of the flaws in my Christian life? Who am I to have that kind of access? There's a sense of stepping back from him, stepping away from him, and, and, and being re, repulsed and uh, resisting that kind of proximity with a holy kind of God. And that's the fear of God where there's a, a reverence and a respect and an awe for him, but a standing back, a, a dread of God. Can I say that? A dread of God, a dread of displeasing him, a, a dread of, of saying something or doing something that, that would not conform with his wishes. Both those things, you see, are built into the fear of God. 
And I, I see a lack of that. I see a lack of it in my life. I see a lack of it in our churches. On our campus, we have 750 college and seminary students. And I look at this younger generation coming up, and I long to see amongst them a greater sense of awe and reverence for God and a greater sense of dread at displeasing God and doing anything that would bring his disfavor. That fear of God is the evidence of having a sense of the holiness of God. And that's what happened to Isaiah in chapter 6. As he steps into the temple, what he saw cultivated a sense of the sovereignty of God, and it affected the rest of his life. And then what he heard cultivated a sense of the holiness of God, and it affected the rest of his life. He was a man who lived in awe before God. He was a man who stands in dread of displeasing God. And friend, that's why he finishes the race running well. He lives his life in the fear of God. And he does it because he has a great sense of the holiness of God. If we read on briefly, we'll discover that there are two or three other things that happen, and they seem to help to understand a little bit more of what he's doing in response to the holiness of God. The third sense that develops is a great sense of his own personal sinfulness. And that's what comes out of what he says in verse 5. Then I said, woe is me. For I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There cultivates within Isaiah a great sense of his personal sinfulness. That's what I've just been mentioning. See, that's one of the results of having a sense of the holiness of God. The more you and I appreciate his purity, the more sensitive we will be about our impurity. The more conscious we are that his love is a holy love, the more conscious we will be about how unholy our love oftentimes is. As Isaiah hears about the holiness of God, he becomes sensitive, conscious of his personal sinfulness. That's always the effect of having a sense of the holiness of God. Why is that so important? Well, it's because of what happens right after that. After his sense of personal holiness, there develops a sense of his indebtedness to the grace of God. In verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it. Now, there's a great deal of symbolism involved there, but essentially the symbolism is from that altar comes a coal that is touched to the mouth of Isaiah, and that suggests the cleansing that comes to Isaiah's 
impure lips, the cleansing that comes to him from off the altar. And my suggestion to you, friend, is that for the rest of Isaiah's life, as he speaks, he has a sense of his indebtedness to the grace of God. His God is a holy God, but he's a man of unclean lips. But God has cleansed his lips. That coal from the altar, that has purified and cleansed him. And now for the rest of his life, Isaiah speaks with a great sense of indebtedness to the grace of God. That has an incredible way of affecting a person's persistence in the ministry. That has an incredible way of encouraging us to keep on, keeping on, keeping on. And when I look down to the end of the line and I see Isaiah standing tall and strong, he began well, he ran well, but the thing that most attracts me to him was he finished well. Was that here was a man who was motivated and encouraged by a great sense of his indebtedness to the grace of God. And after that happened in his life, you know how the story concludes. It says in verse 7, And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Tell me, why is Isaiah so responsive? Because he has a great sense of the sovereignty of God. He's got a great sense of the holiness of God. He's got a great sense of his own personal inadequacy. But he has a great sense of the grace of God at work in his life. And when God then calls out and says, whom shall I send? Who shall go for me? Isaiah says, here am I, Lord. Send me. That's the kind of response that comes from the lives of people who have that sense of God being God and the kind of God that he really is and the kind of grace that has touched him in his life. Then the Lord said in verse 9, Go. Go. And tell this people. And for the next years of Isaiah's life, he keeps going on because he has a great sense of the call of God. And in the times of discouragement and in the times of disappointment, when by all other standards, Isaiah's ministry is to be classified as a colossal failure, Isaiah keeps going on because he has a sense of the call of God. Now let me bring it, bring it together for you, friend. We began this morning by saying that one of, the most, uh, one of the most credible accolades that could ever be given to a man or woman like you and me is not that we begin our Christian life well, and it's not that we run it well, but it's that after 20 or 30 or 40 years, We finish it well. I know lots of people that have begun the race well who aren't running it today. And I know lots of people who began the race well and ran it well. But as they came to those last years of their life, they faltered. And they did not finish it well. They finished it in disgrace. To finish the race well 
What an accolade. What a tribute. What a goal for us in our lives this morning. How do you explain people like Isaiah, who for years in their life preach with no significant response, who by every standard of success in our society today was a total colossal failure? By God's standards, he had a successful ministry. How? Or why, rather? Because he finished the race well. He did the will of God. That's success. He did the will of God. In Dr. Sweeting's terms, that's excellence. He finished the race well. He did the will of God in his life. He ended his life having done the will of God. That's excellence. That's success. How is my question? And the answer from Isaiah's life goes back to the very first chapter of his experience with God when he developed five senses. And he lived his life by those senses. He had a great sense of the sovereignty of God. The throne room of of heaven was open. He saw the throne. The king is on the throne. He had a great sense of the holiness of God. That king who is on the throne is God who is absolutely pure. He has a great sense of his own personal creatureliness. I'm a sinful man. But then he has a great sense of the grace of God. Your sin is forgiven. You're cleansed. And then he has a great sense of the call of God. Go. And he goes. And he goes. And he goes. And at the end of the race, he is still going. Because of his perception of God and the implications of that in Isaiah chapter 6. Some of you are coming close to the end of the race. All of us are closer to the end of the race than we've ever been before. Even young fellers like me might be a whole lot closer to the end of the race than I ever dreamed. The question to you this morning, friend, is how are you going to finish the race? How are you going to finish it? To finish well is to finish with excellence. To finish well is to have done the will of God. And my thesis for you this morning is that in order to do that, you must have a proper concept of God. That means, first of all, he's God. And it means, second of all, that he is a holy God. May God just sharpen our focus during this week so that when we're out walking and out sitting and in bed thinking, we'll sharpen our focus so that, is this too much to hope for? Is it too much to ask for? So that our week, or for some of you, three weeks or six weeks, so that our stay this year at Moody Keswick 
will be just like Isaiah's visit to the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll have such an experience with God. We'll have such a vision of God that we we will cultivate those senses by which we will live our lives so that whether it's next week or next year or 30 years down the road, we will finish the race running well. Partly in due to what God has done this week when we visited Moody Keswick, as Isaiah visited the temple. That's my prayer for my life. And if that's prayer for your prayer for your life, why don't you join me and together we'll just ask God to really do something special in our lives during this week. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for a quiet place like Moody Keswick. We're thankful, Lord, for the opportunity of, in a sense, retreating from all of the pressures and all of the issues of life. Some of us have come from homes and from churches and from ministries and from businesses that are in disarray where there's so much discouragement and there's so much failure and defeat. And we've come to the conference this week, perhaps with the same kinds of spirit and attitudes that Isaiah went to the temple. Lord, we pray that you will give us a little glimpse into the throne room of heaven this week so that we will see the king on his throne and then that we will reflect more carefully on him than we have ever done before and recognize that he is that holy one of Israel, our holy father, a holy God. And grant, Lord, that that truth will be reflected in our lives day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of a five-part series of messages by William McRae answering the question, Who is God? at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.